This season, turn it up to 10. Sort of like a bad habit, we gon' do it again. Ready or not, we're gonna tie up some ends. Go tell a 36, try to grab all the friends. We're back like we never left. On track like a treble clef. Skip a beat on the seventh rest. Bring feast, we don't pass them over. We got the first fruits, no way to show us. Can't live on that bread alone. Every word of God's mouth will fuel me on. That's scripture, that's Christ alone. That's grace alone, that's faith alone. All glory to God, cause that's his alone. Since the land's been slain, we can each belong. The Lord is my strength, my peace, and my song. And I'll lay it all down at the feet of his throne. This yoke is easy, this burns light. Even with a loud mouth trying to eat at the mic. Even if we down south, the humidity spike. Fails torn in tubes, and we gon' be alright. It's all grace till the half goes off. Heretics better run till the top blows off. Got them all stood still like a job full of Botox. Time to break them down like a jaw on a blow pop. Don't stop, they're in need of it though. Through grace, by faith, they could easily grow. New wave, new age, new way to see bro. Now, one truth, life, one way to his throne. It's the year of the feast, we gon' grow some Time to put some meat in the bones Gotta put the milk down, son, it's time to leave home I'm just saying there's a time in the season You gotta be a Berean If you just hear and believe it You could be walking with demons It could be rendering season All the things that go to God That's a little like treason Wait, welcome back, my friends Did you ever really think we could pass the 10? Our stock's up, we about to trend Cause the whole 36 wanna rap again Wait, sounds too good to be true Like we're been in Candyland Ain't no ladders, just shoot We hold true if it's older than the canon Best believe it's understanding If it's not, it ain't proof Like sacred name of the two-house frame Yeah, start to tickle Then you fill it in the blanks You better not You be better off Now try the hassle hop, you can take it to the bank. This night ready, he's about to go off. Put the ring on your finger from the cracker jack box. It's hide and seek. Let's see if you can find out. All the little messages you hit before the timeout. Ever seen a scholar with a blue belt? I have, he's about to make your food melt. The loud one and he strikes again. But don't let him close range, he gon' bite your friends. So relax, gotta still in control. He knows every care, every village you hold. He knows every hair, every need for your soul. Nothing new round here, this story's been told. I bet you feel weak and your life is in tatters. With bruised feet, your body is battered. You can't reach, trying to climb with that ladder Sit back and hold fast to Messiah Matters These guys are better Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. This is Messiah Matters number 456. I'm about to make your food melt. My name is Caleb Hegg. 
And I will not bite your friends. I'm Rob Van Hoff. That's pretty Without good, a bev- This might be a first. I have no beverage. Well, I'm making up. From which to sip. For the both of legend us. Legend jujitsu. <laughs> was the stuff of legend. 80 ounces, baby. 80 ounces. Okay. How's it going on, man? How you doing? What's up, everybody in the chat room? Big Good times. Good times. Let's uh, let's bring up producers here. Thank you to all of our supporters, all of our producers. We got a lot of uh, 2024 winter producers. Going to get producer gifts out. I'm still thinking about adding another gift. So hold your horses. Hold your hold hold your pants on. We uh, we got we got more coming. Ooh, pants. Maybe that's what we should do. Maybe we should do some Messiah Matters pants. I don't know if you've seen our new producer credit, uh, uh, like the the art for it. But it is a play on the MLB logo. So it's, you know, all the sports fans out there who are really into their MLB, this one's for you. you there's still time to, to become an executive producer for sure. Uh, if you think it's too late, it's not. Uh, we're going to hold this one for a long time. Um, so, yeah, we got, uh, we got a couple months left on the winter producer credit. You, too, can be a winter producer, executive winter producer, if you'd like to be, and uh, just go to messiahmatters.com, and you can listen to old shows, or you can become executive producer. That is cool, man. Let's, uh, let's... I just now saw that for, I just pulled it up. What's that? The MLB play. Oh, nice, yes, yes. You can also, by the way, if you, if you want to know what in the world we were talking about in our intro, I want that. I want that. Oh, I want that. Um, if you uh, if you want to know what we were talking about in our intro, then uh, you can go read the lyrics to our new intro music, which is uh, at messiahmatters.com backslash the dash show, I think it is. Anyway, uh, you can just click on the show on the website. You can read the lyrics there. Okay. Uh, before we get started, let's do this. Seahegatorresource.com, C-H-E-G-G at Torresource.com. That is our email address. Send any questions, comments, show topics, whatever you want. We read them all. Also, you can leave us uh, a message on our comment line, 253-465-3205. You won't talk to us. You'll just talk to a message machine. You can tell us how much you love us, hate us, agree with us, disagree with us, whatever you want. Not a problem. Also, messiahmatters.com, we've already mentioned that. And finally, this show is produced by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource and find all sorts of stuff. By the way, I'm not sure, but a little birdie told me that uh, Mr. Rab, Rob Van Hoff, Rab, Rab Van Hoff, Rob Van Hoff might be uh, creating another mini course for, uh, mm. what, what, are you, what are you doing this time there, Rob? Well, Purim's next, so Boom. there's that. Boom. So get yourself a library membership now and uh, you will be able to see that when it comes out. And finally, last but certainly not least, please make sure to subscribe to this YouTube channel. I know it sounds weird, but it really does help us. Uh, And if you're already subscribed, do us a different favor. Click that like button. All right. Should we jump in? What do you want to do? You you know, I just, well, I could say you don't have to wait to Hanukkah to do the Hanukkah mini course. I'm just saying. That's true. This is learning is always good. Learning is always good. Let me fix you real quick. It looks like I got you a little bit small on my screen. Bring you up here a little bit. Sorry there, buddy. Gonna get you. Gonna get you going. All right. The problem is, is that because of the program that we use, 
There's a little clip on the top and the bottom. Okay, you're going to go black for a second. Boom, there we go. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, should we jump in? What do you want to do? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's jump in. We actually do have a lot to talk about today uh, because we got some great, uh, some great messages. Okay, Matt writes in. He says this. Now, we've talked about this multiple times on this show before, but it's been a, a couple years, so it's time to bring it back up. He says, Matt says, I saw on an Instagram story, so you know it's a great source, <laughs> how about the Masoretic text contains differences with the versions found in Qumran as well as pretty significant differences. Esther was given as an example with the Septuagint. Okay, let's pause real quick. I'm not sure which... Esther he's talking about. So Esther was not found at, at uh, Qumran, which is one of the reasons that some scholars believe that it, it was not uh, canonical in the first century. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that uh, Qumran may not have thought it was canonical, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the uh, Judaisms of the first century didn't find it to be canonical. It just means that they didn't find it at Qumran. That's number one. Number two, the differences between the Septuagint and the uh, and the Masoretic text, there are differences. There's no doubt about it. We'll talk about those in a few seconds. Let's keep going with Matt's question. Given that the Masoretic text was done hundreds of years later than the Septuagint, which one is more correct? I'm seriously considering starting to learn Hebrew next fall with Torah Resource. After seeing this div uh, divinely inspired Instagram post, I'm wondering what the two of your thoughts on this subject are and whether or not it'd be better to learn Greek and read both the Septuagint and the Apostolic Writings or better to understand the, uh, and appreciate the Tanakh, may, my main objective through the learning of Hebrew. I'm going to pass this off to Rob first while I look for something. Ready? Go. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, um, so the what I'm hearing, the basic question, thanks for the question, by the way. Um, what I'm understanding the question to be, just to reiterate, is I'm interested in studying Bible languages, and the main right. ones, obviously, are, are Hebrew and Greek. Right. Um, and I, I'm also interested in the text history. That is how we got the Bibles that we have. And I'm interested in understanding how do we evaluate various manuscripts, and how do we, like, in other words, if I want to the quickest route what's the straight shot between me and the word of god and what language do i need to learn first for that route and he well, sounds I, like he's evaluating well normally if if i could affirm that the masoretic text was the true the truest most faithfully copied um tradition of the quote old testament of the tanakh then hebrew would be like a go-to language but if if in fact the Masoretic text is somehow defective in a way that the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation, is more true to the original Hebrew, whatever that imagined original Hebrew, Vorlage in German, then why not just skip Hebrew, go straight to Greek, and then immerse myself in Septuagint and New Testament and maybe take Greek or maybe take Hebrew down the line, but making Greek the priority. That's what I'm hearing. His, I think I took more words to describe how I understood his question. So if that that's it, then I I would say, well, it's a good question to ask because it comes from a position of someone who's like, look, I, I'm willing to put in some hard hours. I want to do it efficiently. 
you know, I only have so much time on this planet. I, what, how do I get into the nitty gritty of the word of God? You got to do both languages, right? You got to do Hebrew and Greek to some degree, because you need to learn to be in, inhabit those other worlds. You need to learn how to inhabit the world where you can read, even if it's a little bit, like if you can learn Psalm one or read from Genesis or something in Hebrew and understand it in Hebrew, you need to learn what that feels like. And the same thing, learn a little bit of Greek enough to where you can read a, a couple sentences from Paul, from the gospel of John, this kind of thing and go, okay, I got a sense of, I can understand it on its own terms in what we call our grammatical, historical kind of meaning, because the skills that we have to learn to be able to inhabit those worlds come with, there's resources out there that you're going to be able to avail yourself of the halot, right? Hebrew, Aramaic, lexicon, and Old Testament, or the BDAG, which is the Oxford University's standard Greek lexicon for ancient Christianity. So, so things like this, that you'll know how to use those tools much more optimally. And you'd, you're never going to look at a strong concordance again, because you have, you've kind of like, you, you've gone to the major leagues, but don't, Hey, there's a plug of our uh, executive, executive producer. Yes. Um, but so ultimately it takes a lot of work and you got to do more than one language and Aramaic inevitably is going to be part of that. Even if it's just tangential to learning a little to your Hebrew um, real quick. I love it. Caleb, you're like, you're like, totally you're, right. Wait, wait, you're wait, totally wait, right. There wait, is no wait, Esther. Wait. Oh, go ahead. I, I love it. I love it. You're, this guy's like, I'm going to do some really hard work. I'm a little nervous about it. You're like, well, the work is three times as hard and big as you think. Don't do that. Plan for much more. <laughs> like, come on, man. I'm a realist, in, man. Encourage the guy. I'm a realist. Keep like going. If you want to climb Mount Everest, you know, it, it, it takes what it takes. Keep you going. Know, if you want to look, if you want to be on the summit of Mount Everest on a sunny day and be able to look around and see for we'll play good cop. We'll, but we'll play good cop, bad cop here because you can go ahead and, and, and give the bad news. I'll give the good news. Go ahead. Okay. Let me, let me just wrap up and then hand it back. Caleb, Caleb is totally right. We don't have Esther at Qumran either in manuscript form or in calendar noted on the calendar of Purim. Neither do we have Hanukkah or any of the Maccabean works attested. Whereas we look at, we have a solid uh, Masoretic tradition of the of the Hebrew text of Esther, but not attested to the first century, admittedly. But we have, I think, three at least three different Greek recensions in uh, of Esther. So, in other words, Jewish communities in the Second Temple period in Greek speaking diaspora were telling the story of Esther, and they were telling it and retelling it, and the story expanded. For example. The Hebrew text of Esther has no prayer in it, but the, some of the Greek versions, I haven't looked at them for a while, but they have all sorts of places where Esther prays, where Mordecai prays, Mordecai interprets dreams, these kind of things that show that the book of Esther had a lot of meaning for diaspora Jews in the second, uh, second temple period, and that they told the story and they expanded it as they told it. And so I think Caleb's right on when he says, look, we don't use what exists at the, in the Qumran library as a measure of canon of what is canon, because we're dealing with a, 
a uh, fragmented Jewish uh, sectarian movement that was probably decisively anti-temple, anti-temple scribes, anti-temple priests. They thought God was going to come and zap those guys and that these Tzadukim, this sons of B'nai Tzadok, the Essenes were going to be able to go back and be priests. And they were kind of waiting it out in the wilderness uh, until their time would come. And of course they died Oopsies. out. Rome came and wiped them all out. <laughs> yeah. Oopsies. So, um, Mis- misjudged that there. one. Go ahead, Caleb. Did I, don't, uh, I might, I might've missed some points. No, 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 not at all. Okay. Um, here's what I would say. I would say, number one, um, when it comes to the, the general question of what is more accurate, the, uh, Hebrew or the Greek Septuagint, ultimately, uh, I go back to the, the scriptures. Paul tells us in Romans three, uh, then what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way? Because first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I take this to mean that they were in charge of handing down the scriptures, and therefore the Masoretic text is part is the the form of that tradition that we have today. So from Moses um, until today, what we have left of the of the handing down of the oracles of God, the preservation of the oracles of God, is the Masoretic text. And so, uh, in in that respect, I think that the Masoretic text is king when it comes to uh, what we should be basing stuff off of. Now, with that said, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that probably uh, need to be clarified or things that can be seen from the the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a translation of Hebrew, and so you're always going to. And not only that, but Greek and Hebrew are, are two very different languages. And so you're always going to lose stuff. You're always going to have differences in a, in a translation. I have likened this before to someone translating the Bible from English into uh, Mandarin Chinese. Uh, the, the fact is, is that things are just much, much different in those two languages. You're going to have things don't translate correctly, right? The, the, so you have to make some, some differences here. The point is, is that the Septuagint is a, is a valuable tool for us to use when trying to reconstruct the original uh, text that they had in the first century. With that said, the Masoretic text essentially is the go-to because it's in the original language. The Jews were very, very, very diligent in attempting to make sure that there were no changes made to the text. And so ultimately, we can trust our Bible and we can trust the, the text that, the, that, that uh, the Jewish people, the, the people of Israel were entrusted to keep. That was what their charge was, and they and I think that they kept it very well. That doesn't mean that the Septuagint needs to be thrown out or anything or any such thing. It is a valuable valuable tool. When it comes to languages, uh, yeah, Rob's probably right that you'll need some literacy in in uh, multiple languages to be able to uh, to be the student that you probably want to be. However, with that said, I would encourage you to start with Hebrew. I mean, it really depends what your focus of study is. If you're if you are interested in reading the Tanakh, then Hebrew is going to be your best bet. Don't learn Greek first if you want to read the Tanakh. You want to read the Tanakh in Hebrew uh, first and foremost. Um, but obviously, I, the logic behind that for me, and it's just because, is because I think chronological organization is like something that is in the Bible. I mean, you, you start the book of Genesis and you end the book of Genesis and a, a, basically it's organized as a, as time goes by. Right. 
right? Noah, Abraham, right? Then Jacob and then Joseph in Egypt, right? Time's going by. And so for a believer who's like, yeah, in the long run, I'm going to do both. I'm the same way. I'm saying start with Hebrew and like learn to like imaginatively time travel back then. And then when you learn Greek, you're like going, okay, I'm kind of coming forward on the timeline. And there's, I think, a nice uh, approach in that regard, you know, to, to do it chronologically. But if you're coming into it and you're like, man, I just want to be a, I just want to understand the gospel of John. Like that's my passion. Then go right to Greek. Right. I think, I think that, uh, that, you know, the debate rages among people on which is easier or harder to learn Hebrew or Greek. Now, I personally believe that Hebrew is much harder to, to learn than Greek is. Uh, and the reason why is because I think that Greek has a lot more of the Western languages incorporated into it, or that the Western languages have incorporated Greek into it. And therefore, we have a lot of similarities. With that said, you know, my, my dad's point always is, uh, that uh, Hebrew only has one article, whereas Greek has what twenty seven or something like that. That never bothered me. That never, you know, that that never hung me up. Uh, and so I I found Greek to be more uh, easier to learn. However, um, some people find Hebrew easier to learn. But ultimately, you know, I I would say learn Hebrew first, and we can trust the uh, Masoretic text. Okay, let's move on. What, I want to move to one footnote, if I may, back to. Com- people may. who want to compare the Masoretic text with the Septuagint. What scholars will say is like, oh, you know, there's stuff in the Septuagint, let's say in Genesis, that's not in the Hebrew Masoretic text. And they're like, oh, well, did they make that up? Did they modify it? Or was there some sort of prior Hebrew text that the Septuagint is being true to that the Masoretic text didn't like? And when you get into those questions, it's you enter, enter into speculation land because we don't have it. And and even if you zero into Qumran and let's say what something we do have at Qumran, which is the great Isaiah scroll, we have all sorts of uh, smaller fragments from scrolls of Isaiah. They don't all agree with each other. It's not like Qumran itself, the Qumran library had an official book of Isaiah that they copied and preserved. Same with the book of Exodus. If you look at all the fragments of Exodus 1, for example, from Qumran, they don't agree with each other. There's not like a uniform Hebrew text of the Bible at Qumran. Um, where we get the uniformity is what we see in the, the Judean desert scrolls that are outside of Qumran, that they like 98% agree with the Masoretic tradition that's a thousand years later. So... And, and then one other bit to remember is that there is no, it wasn't like the King James version. You know, we like to think of like the Septuagint was produced, like you had a, a benefactor or a, or a king say, okay, I'm going to give you, get all the best scribes of the land, even though that's what the letter of Aristeus makes it look like. Um, it really seems that. Smoolie's publishing and, and writing company, right? Like Yeah, Alexandrian Jewish scribal uh, publishing. Company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, and, and as a matter of fact, Isaiah is one of those ones that that it is has a lot of difficult places in. It's like, what what is he doing? And and there's a scholar we've talked about before. I think is is his last name Kim. He uh, showed that well. It seems that the 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 Jew who translated Isaiah into Greek 
that his first language was Aramaic. So he was reading the Hebrew text of Isaiah, kind of doing the best he could, even though his main language was Aramaic, and then putting it, rewording it into Greek as best he could. And so it's not like where yeah, you have, have that with the you, same you, committee that governing the entire translation project. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have that with every single manuscript. When I did uh, work in Beza, that was very very interesting because they, what they did did with I mean this is totally separate topic. But you know when I was looking at Beza, they they look at every single one of the scribes and they know the different hands, right? They can recognize the different hands, so they can say there was this many authors, this many copyists, and this copyist. Uh, he was trans, you know, he was copying off of this and, he, you know, they can place it at certain schools. Uh, you know, this is obviously later, but they can, they can place it at different schools. So, uh, they place the, the, co the original copying of, of, uh, Beza at Leon because, and they, you know, they know what hand he was using, whether he was left-handed or right-handed, they know like all sorts of, and just going down that rabbit trail into you, the, you know, you really become uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, when you're looking at this stuff, and it is very interesting. So anyway, okay, let's move on. I want to move on to a different topic, and this is going to be our main topic for the day. When I say main topic, it just means the one that I'll probably name the episode after. Uh, this is, Mike wrote in, this is actually his second question, not his first, but we got this question from multiple people in the same week, which is very odd. So I'm wondering if a new video came out or something from a ministry. I don't know. I don't know why this question was asked. Um, by multiple people in one week, but we're going to use Mike's uh, email to frame the question. He says this, how should we view Yeshua's statement in John 13, 34? Let's go there real quick. Sorry, John 13, 34. We'll get some context on this. Let me go to all texts versus... Um, how far back do we want to go? Okay, we'll go to 31 real quick. I'll read this real quick, and then we'll go on with uh, Mike's question. When he had gone out, Yeshua said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. Little children, I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you can't come. So now I tell you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just like I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, now let's keep going with Mike's question. We'll start over with Mike's question. How would we view Yeshua's statement in John 13, 34 of a new commandment to love another in light of Leviticus 19, 18 of the command to love your neighbor as yourself? Yes, I realize Yeshua, Yeshua repeated this in Matthew 5, 43, but it seems the new commandment is very similar to the Levitical commandment. Is there something about the word new, uh, kind of like the new moon? The moon is not new as it as in recreated, but new to the next cycle. I have thoughts on this, um, and I'm going to go first because then uh, Rob can correct me and tell me why I'm wrong. Um, so I see this in two ways. Number one, the command uh, to... So I used to always see this as tongue-in-cheek, right? I give you a new command, but the command has always been there, right? To love, to love one another. Um, and so that's how I used to view this command is that it was a tongue in cheek that he's kind of, you know, Yeshua's sense of humor is actually quite, quite good. Uh, if you read the gospels, he, he, you know, actually the other day I walked into uh, my son's room and he was kind of laughing and he was listening to the Bible 
before I went to bed. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, man, Yeshua is just like totally dogging all the Pharisees. He's like, you know, he quoted something, then he did one of the dabs. Anyway, so the point is, is that Yeshua does have a pretty good sense of humor. However, I have changed my view on this. The part that's new to me is he says that you love one another just like I have loved you. That's the new part. And what is the uh, what is the what is the, the the way that Yeshua has loved us? Well, he loved us before we loved him, even when we still hated him. Right when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, I made you alive together with Christ. Okay, so even when we didn't want forgiveness, he forgave us. Uh, that's not found in the Torah. Uh, when uh, even when we spat in his face, he still loved us. And he was willing to die for us. Um, and even though we had done horrendous things, in other words, our sin is is unforgivable. Yet he forgives us. So we see throughout the the apostolic scriptures that the command is is that we love people, we love our brothers and sisters, um, in the same way that God has loved us. In that uh, we, it, it's grace. We don't deserve the forgiveness. We don't deserve the love, but. We, we love anyway, because that's how we have been shown love. We love in the way that God loves us. And I think that this is the new element to the command. It's not that we love one another, but that we love like Christ has loved. That's my, my opinion on this passage. Rob? Yeah, I, I agree with the, pretty much everything you said, except I, I would say the idea of it, it's, <laughs> that it's not in the Torah Maybe not explicitly, but the very sure. the very Abrahamic covenant guarantees all the families of the world will be blessed. Sure. That means God's love is victorious for his elect. Right. So and then you could say, well, Deuteronomy 30 says God, you know, Adonai himself will circumcise your hearts. Like the idea is there's a problem, even though in spite of Moses is saying, Look, I'm gonna die. You guys are going to go into idolatry, but it's going to come around. There will be genuine repentance. There will be, God will give you a new heart. And so, um, what, so I would just say it's there in those ways, even though the language might be different. Um, I, in my view, it's talking about the same thing because it's that guarantee that, uh, is, is in the core of the gospel that Paul says was preached to Abraham, you know, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, how was that accomplished when the nations are hostile to the God of Israel? His love must overcome that hostility somehow. Um, now, again, I, I agree. It wasn't, it's, it's not fully revealed until Messiah comes in the flesh. Right. So I I'm on, I'm fully on board with that, that, it, that it's uh, it's, it's revealed fully. Um but another aspect to the newness is is true, and this touches on, you know, where Yeshua he teaches in parables and all these parables, and they're like, why do you teach in parables? And then he cites Isaiah six. He says, for hearing, hearing they you know they have ears but they cannot hear, they have eyes but they cannot see, their hearts are dull. Um, and and like why does he cite this obscure, um, or you know difficult passage from Isaiah six. And I think it's because in my opinion, it's the people are in kind of an echo chamber, a real, if you think of 
you know, they talk about political echo chambers in our day and age, like Trump supporters only hang out with Trump supporters, you know, or, or, um, LGBTQ only hangs out with LGBT, right? And they kind of just reinforce their messaging. Caleb, let's face it, Messiah Matters is we're probably part of an echo chamber for uh, some sort of one Torah movement. I don't know. Of course. Um, but the idea is, I think in the first century, if we kind of allow us to use that kind of idea of an echo chamber, and we go, you know what? The Pharisees had an echo chamber and they defended, they were afraid of outsiders because they didn't want they what they valued they wanted to protect and the same thing with the sadducees sadducees had some things they wanted to protect they didn't want to budge on certain things and they were afraid let's say the pharisees if they let too many pharisees in it's gonna it's gonna um they're gonna lose what they value same thing with the essenes it doesn't mean what they valued or their priorities were right in god's eyes it's just that that's what happens you have these people groups that are they become echo chambers and they can't hear anything outside of their own, their own discourse, right? They, they become numb to it. And when Yeshua comes, and so therefore, but in those echo chambers, they're all affirming the Torah of Moses, right? You've got the Essenes, you've got the Pharisees, even the Samaritans, right? They've got a Torah of Moses that they believe to be true. And they have, they all have this written command, love your neighbor as yourself. But how they define neighbor is spun within their echo chamber. And so when Yeshua comes, his love back to Caleb's point, it's like at, you know, the new commandment is love the way I do. Don't love the way the Pharisees love. Don't love the way the Sadducees love. Don't love the way he says, even sinners love themselves, right? Love those who love them back. It's an echo chamber of reciprocity of, 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 behavior and hope and forbearing with other people. And Yeshua breaks through all that and says the commandment that God gave was never, it, it's, it's the, it's the result of sinful humanity that these echo chambers have calcified. Sure. Into these different sectarian groups. And the true commandment to love is obscure to all of them. It's obscure or what do you call it? Obscure, they can't see it. They don't, they don't hear it from God's spirit. They see it as a written thing that they believe that they know how to do the Torah. And they're all competing with each other. And Yeshua comes in and the, all those traditions of men have to be smashed down to say, look. And so he gives the parable, I think it's in Luke, of the what we call the good Samaritan, right? And, he, and he's like, because he says, who is my, well, okay, love your neighbors yourself is the greatest commandment. Well, who's my neighbor? Right? He's like, well, okay, yeah, but only insiders, right? Only other Pharisees or only other Sadducees. And Yeshua's like, no, let me give you an example. A priest, right? A Levite. Um, but then a Samaritan comes and he treat he behaves a certain way towards us towards a stranger. And Yeshua says, that's the that's what exemplifies a fulfillment of the intention of the commandment, not the priests worry about his own maybe cont getting contaminated with the, the impurity or, oh, that guy's a Gentile. He probably, he's already cursed by God. You know, um, why do I need, I don't, I'm not obligated to help him. You know, whatever those attitudes were of the religious elite in this parable, it's this Samaritan, which is like, Ooh, Samaritan, they're heretics, right? Kind of thing. Well, look at, did he, the question is not, 
was he a Samaritan or not? The question is, how did he behave towards another human? And that that is closer to the heart of the command than the what the priests and Levites were occupied with in their minds at that time. So um, I think the newness then is helping the disciples shift out of a tit-for-tat kind of um, reciprocal back-scratching or echo-chamber way of sectarian viewing of the world and saying, oh, it's new to them because they're like, oh, I have to change the definition of neighbor. And and I'm going to look at Yeshua and I'm going to go, oh, wow. He He loved people. Like locally, we're reading through Luke and we read how he, Yeshua leaves Galilee. He goes across the lake to the east side and he heals the demoniac who's hanging out with these naked. He's hanging out in the tombs, which is all unclean. And he heals the guy, sends the demons into the pigs, right? They've got pig, pig herdsmen over there. So we know that they're, this isn't a, a culture of impurity over There's there. a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. And he heals him. And then, and then he, then he heads back over. That's, and the guy want, he begged to come with Yeshua. He says, let me come with you. And he's like, no, I've got work for you to do. You go and you tell what God has done for you, which means you're taking the message of the God of Israel to this pagan people. And then Yeshua leaves. It's like, he goes over there. Whereas what, what other Jew would do, you know, it, it, he's, he's, demonstrating a confidence in the covenant, but that the covenant is a light for the world. It's not, it's not to be put under the bushel, right? The light is to be put up. So it lights everybody in the house. And that newness, I think is that like, look, I know you Pharisees think that you love, you love the way God says low. I know you Sadducees think you love the way, but look, it's like, you have to realize it's like you have a, you've, you're lighting a lamp and you're hiding it in your echo chamber. And that's, that's not fulfilling the Torah that so has to be put up on the lampstand. Okay. I'm done. Okay. I, I, so great explanation. And I think you're, you're right on, on that. Um, I think that uh, just, I'll, I'll end cap that. Uh, I think that uh, loving your neighbor does not mean loving the people that are just so close to you that uh, you know, it's not just loving your buddies. It's loving the people that are hard to love. Okay. I want to touch on one that's not in your show notes, Rob. I got this. Right. I've been having a conversation with somebody in the past uh, day. Her name's Wendy. She's been commenting on a video that we did years ago. And when I say years ago, you were flipped around. You had bookshelves behind you, white bookshelves and books on your shelves. I was in my old office at my at the TR offices. So nice. it's, been, it's, it's been a minute and a half, right? Um. And our, our, the video that she's commenting on was called, What Does 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 19 Mean? Okay. And uh, so if you're, if you're unfamiliar, uh, Paul uses this, this phrase, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commands of God. Something to that effect. He uses it many times, I think five times in total. And in Galatians too. Yeah, it's a, a variation of it. Right. So, so, but I mean, the point is, that I think he uses it five or six times throughout his writings. Okay, and so we were talking about this, and and I, I, Wendy, I know of three for, for sure, but anyway, okay. Um, Wendy comments and she says, "What about nineteen B?" And I said, 
I don't understand the question. Can you elaborate on the question? She says, yes, I understand that Paul is saying that salvation is not by works, but here uh, he is saying circumcision is not important. Then in the same sentence says it's all about the law. Isn't being circumcised a part of the law? Now, I wrote her back and I said, yes, and perhaps in this video, we have not explained our position correctly. So we will do so on our show today. And so this is that response. So thank you very much, Wendy. Uh, you know, a lot of the time what happens is we, we clip um, portions from our large show. Our show is an hour long on Wednesday mornings, if you have missed it. And uh, so what, what I do is I try to clip three to four different clips that are about five minutes long, somewhere around five minutes long. And I do this so that people get, a, get a, a various topics, so people get a taste of various topics, answers to certain topics without having to wade through an hour long show to find them. And so a lot of the time what will happen is I'll clip something, it won't get the whole, you know, I had somebody <laughs> say the other day, well, this is a waste of time. I was looking for, you know, I named it something like what you're not supposed like, but what, what's prohibited on the Sabbath? They're like, there were no prohibitions listed. Thanks a lot for wasting my time. I'm never watching again. It was, okay. Yeah. There's like, as always, these guys like, yeah, exactly. And, and so that's, that's fine. But uh, I understand that in this video, it's very possible that we didn't get to the main point. I'm going to try to summarize this as quickly as possible. And then I'll throw it over to Rob. Um, I, I have argued, and you can find uh, videos, I will try to link these in show notes. Uh, I have, I've created a video on circumcision in the first century. I believe that circumcision is used multiple times for multiple different reasons. Sorry. I believe that circumcision is used for multiple different uh, meanings. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. Uh, circumcision is used uh, in the first century writings to refer to the physical act of cutting away the flesh of the pro, uh, procreate the uh, the member of procreation that <laughs> men have. Okay, so that is one meaning of it. Circumcision is also, if you look in like the ESV, it'll say say the circumcision party, right? Um, like Galatians two, it says, and he uh, he. Um, moved away, and uh, and, it, and then it says uh, so that the circumcision party. Well, th that's just the word circumcision. The word Sometimes party they put a there. capital C, right? On that yes, too. yeah, yeah, exactly. This is just the word circumcision. So he says, and the circumcision accused him, or the, and the circumcision, you know, and the, and then they supply the word right. party. So clearly, this is a different meaning than the cutting away of the flesh of the uh, of the foreskin. Okay. I have argued that the there is another uh, meaning that is used in the, in the first century, and that is the completion of a uh, conversion process. Now, there were, in my opinion, there were different. Uh, if you wanted to become a Pharisee of of this group, you had to go through their conversion. If you wanted to become a Sadducee, you had to go, become a conversion of their group. We see in various letters, especially Galatians, that the 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 people, the, the various groups did not believe that you were saved until you became part of their conversion. And so Paul uses the shorthand circumcision as the uh, as this conversion process, in my opinion. So what he's saying here is, let, let me see if I can just state it a different way. This is how I believe what I believe Paul is saying. Conversion is nothing. Not conversion, not converting is nothing. 
What matters is keeping the commandments of God. In other words, you don't have to be associated with any specific group. You don't have to, you know, and this still happens today. If you, if I go to the Catholic church three blocks away from me and I walk in, they're going to say, have you, you know, have you been baptized in the Catholic church? If I go to a Lutheran church and say, well, I was baptized in the Baptist church, there are some Lutheran churches that are going to say to me, that doesn't count. You got to be baptized by us. You haven't really been baptized yet. And this is the exact thing that, that Paul is talking about. He's saying it doesn't, group association means nothing. What matters in terms of salvation is faith. So justification comes through faith. He argues this in Galatians 3. He argues that Abraham had faith and then he was circumcised. And so his point is, here is, look, none of that matters. Faith is what matters, and what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So I would argue, for Wendy, I would argue that, yes, circumcision— that faith means the gospel. Yes. For and Abraham. I, that's why he says the, what Abraham believed— is the gospel and right. circumcision was subsequent to that. So if you if someone's telling you, oh, just get circumcised and you belong to Abraham, just but you convert. haven't heard the gospel or repented or believed in Yeshua, it's like there's no profit for you. There, there is a very important piece to this though. And this is the piece that I think a lot of people miss. I don't believe that Paul is saying, don't get circumcised. That's not what he's saying. Right. Because circumcision right. is a command of of the Torah, exactly like the question states, it is. Yeah, it is part of the it is part of the Torah. It is part of the commandments. It's However, not, but it's it, not more than that. And, exactly. and that's what you're making exactly. the point. It's like people and, have like spun it to say, "Hey, insider, like baptism is baptism." Can you be Lutherans saved without saying, being baptized? Baptism is more. Yeah. Catholics are saying there's more to baptism than what you those Baptists taught you. Right? right, and they're making it now a political issue. They're con they're taking baptism and making it political for group affiliation, and that is back to the new commandment kind of thing. Love your neighbors yourself. It was taken, and you could say it, it was hijacked to advance different agendas of different sects. And then it's like, let's, what does it become? They let, put their tradition above the commandment. Let's put it this way. If somebody says to you, you have to be baptized to be saved, that is exactly what this is, is, is speaking against. It's not saying that you shouldn't get circumcised or that you shouldn't get baptized or that you shouldn't uh, follow the commandments of God. What it's saying is, is that if you place on any action the like idea a, a, that a, I'm going Apollo, to be saved by of, it. Of yeah. Cephas, of Apollo like nothing matters except keeping the commandments of God. It would be the same, right? That's your point. Right. You could just, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. So, so the notion that, uh, that circumcision is done away with, this is used often to say circumcision is done away with. I don't think that that's what this means. This is used often to say that, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately this is the, the Torah has been done away with. This is uh, nonsense. So I hope that that clears that up for Wendy. Let's go back to our notes. I want to, I want to do the one from, Judges, is that? Yeah, from Judges. Cynthia says, I have a question. Now, this is going to be a quick one, I think, and the reason why is because, is because I don't have a good answer for it. Okay, uh, Cynthia says, I have a question regarding the book of Judges. In chapter 11, we see that Jephthah made a vow to God that if he is given victory, he would make a burnt offering with whatever comes out of his house. Now, the first time I read it, 
I thought he was going to literally burn his daughter as a burning sacrifice since she was the first one to come out of his house upon his return. But he said in the vow that he would give whatever comes out of his house to Adonai as a burnt offering. Does that mean that he gave his daughter to the temple as a version of a burnt sacrifice, or did he literally burn his daughter, which makes no sense since God does not like human sacrifice, nor does he even think about them, Jeremiah 19.5. Okay, well, um, there is a lot of debate on this among scholars, and the answer is we don't know. We're kind of going off of... um, uh, of guesses. If Jephthah was actually following God, then he certainly did not burn his daughter. Um, the idea that she goes up into the mountains for a month before she is given to the temple. Some people see this as her like last, you know, her bucket list before she dies. I would say that if Jephthah is actually following the Torah, then uh, she is going out uh, to be with her friends before she is giving, given to the temple because she's going to be a virgin for the rest of her life. Now, this isn't to say that she's do- doing anything sexually immoral, but rather that she has time to go and be with her maidens before she goes and lives a life of celibacy in the temple. That's, uh, that is probably the main view and the view that I would probably take. However... However, there is also another view. At the end of Judges, it says, uh, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, and so many have, have said that this is the uh, wrapping on the, on the presence of Judges, that basically Judges goes through and shows every single thing that people did that was heinous and awful in God's sight, but they did it anyway because it was right in their own eyes. Under this view, if we took that view, that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, then could it be possible that Jephthah burns his daughter as a burnt offering? The answer is yes. Under that view, it could be because he's not doing according to the Torah. He's doing what's right in his own eyes and not according to what God wants him to do. So which one is it? Well, we don't know. Um, I I think that there is uh, the best argument is that he dedicates his daughter and gives her in service to uh, God in the temple. However, um, is it possible that he actually burned her? I, as, as unfortunate as uh, such an interpretation would be, it is certainly possible, especially with the ending of Judges being the way that it is. I think that if you look at Judges, some of the most horrific things that we see in, uh, in the entire Bible are performed in the book of Judges. The last story where, where the dude gets mad at uh, the tribe of Joshua, <laughs> and he, he, he cuts his, his, his concubine up and sends her to all these... Dirt. I mean, it's just... It, it's something out of a horror movie. It really is. It's, it's, it's awful. It, and um, it's not the only story like that. Samson, um, you know, when I was... When we were thinking about naming our, our one of our sons, we thought about the, the name Samson. You know, I went through and I read Samson. The dude's not really that great of a guy, honestly. When we look at it, he's, he's kind of a ladies' man, right? He's, he's going after the ladies. And uh, it's, you know... It's not something that I think God smiled upon. And so the point is, you go through the book of Judges, it's story after story of us going, yeah, He was oh, supposed to be word. a Nazarite. Speaking of vows, he was supposed <laughs> yeah. to be a, a Nazarite. And then he's like doing all this stuff, you know, that was, it's like, wait a minute. But yeah. So um, I had a, a, just a comment. Are you, yes. The Jeff is a great example. And, um, there's a book by David Marcus, um, who retired from Jewish Theological Seminary, whose Feshrift, I contributed an article called Case of the Closed Mem, available online. Uh, let me know if you'd like For $185. Uh, <laughs> what's that? 
for $185. Isn't that, it, it wasn't it a publishing company that like prices things very high. What, how much is oh, that? Oh no, book? this, this one actually is free. It's all online for free. The, Oh, nice. The okay. Never mind. Oh, the article's free online. Um, but he wrote a book, David Marcus wrote a book in the eighties called Jephthah and his vow. And it's a whole book that explores this very question and says, look, you know, that there are, there are two different ways of reading this text throughout history. And he looks very closely at the Hebrew text. And his argument is that basically he leans for the same viewpoint that you shared, you know, that, that this, um, you know, was a, he didn't literally do this, that this represented, he gave her up kind of like maybe Hannah gave up um, Samuel or something like that, a way of right. a, a gift unto the Lord. Um which means they're no longer going to benefit because the thing of a whole, an Ola is that the user doesn't benefit anymore. Like you've, give, you've given it over to God, right? It belongs to God. Um, and so he goes into this, but he explores all the different arguments for and against of that. He literally did this. And I think the framing that you point out, Caleb is, is exactly right. That the every, everyone did what's right in their own eyes. I think that the Holy Spirit inspired the book of Judges to actually have Jephthah as a center point. And I have, I, my view is that he did not literally offer her. And what kicks me over the edge for that interpretation is that Jephthah is listed as a man of faith in Hebrews 11. And that means that it, in the whole list there. Yeah. Now you could say, well, David was listed and he was a murderer. You know, I suppose you could, someone could do that sort of thing. Um, but I think that he was a man of God. He was a man of faith. And, um, but what it does, because there's enough, I, our English translations can translate the Hebrew in a way that directs you to think that, oh, he, he did it. But if, if you're very careful and you're honest to the, the straight Hebrew text, it's, what David Marcus argues is deliberately ambiguous. It deliberately puts the the reader in a place uh -huh. of what's right in whose eyes. Like right. it, it puts you right on the fence. And then you have to appeal to That's a, great a, point. a vision of God's will or a vision of like a, a, a kind of a carnal reading. And it right. puts the reader right there. And, and you have to, it shows that by faith, we say he did not do it, right? We, and it's a faith-based interpretation that does not abuse the text in any way. Because like I said, I think David Marcus, who was a professor of Bible for how many decades, um, and he's not within a Christian tradition. He's within a within the conservative Jewish tradition. Right. Um, but, but wrestling nevertheless with the same uh, difficulty of a history of interpretation that is heavily weighted on the side of Jephthah, Jephthah slaughtering his daughter. And he comes out saying he doesn't think that's the proper reading. He thinks it's, that it, the text deliberately sets up the interpreter to see what move the interpreter's going to make. And then they'll see what they want to see right. subsequently. And, and that's, that's my idea. And, you know, I don't think that's the only place the Bible does that. I think the Bible gives all sorts of places where it puts a person, the reader or the hearer, in a situation where they're 
oh, and then the question is, okay, well, if I give heavy hermeneutical weight to the covenant promises and the character of God and his holiness, then the answer is obvious. But if I give weight to like, oh, this is just men doing their own thing. Nobody really knows what the truth is. You know, who knows whether God real is real or not, right? And th th then you slip down into the worldly, and then you have your secular Bible scholars, you know, who next thing you know, they're t shredding up the text and saying, this right. was original, this was stitched together, this was corrupted. This shows that the God of Israel was really a vengeful, you know, uh, what do you call it? You know, genocidal maniac. And Israel just invented their religion based off of what they were picking and choosing from other Egypt or Mesopotamia or whatever. And then you get that kind of thing and God lets them have it. You know, he lets them have it and run with it. That's, that's it. I think that's great. I, I mean, the idea that, uh, the text leaves the like leaves it ambiguous for the reader to have to wrestle with. Uh, I think makes sense. Um, it, yeah. That's what the scriptures do. It's to build us up so that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. That means so we're we have a governing. I use the word hermeneutic. I hope that's not alienating people. What I mean is you have a we have a principle of seeking God's kingdom first and trusting in His sovereignty and His covenant promises. And we interpret the scriptures from that down. We don't start with the scriptures. And or it's like people say, you know, I'm going to learn Hebrew and I'm going to read the Tanakh. And then I'm going to judge the gospels. I'm going to just see if, does Jesus really qualify to be the Messiah? You know, if someone's taking that attitude, right. God's going to let them have it, you know, but, but they're going to just find it's echo chamber again. They're going to just be recycling their own I mean, thoughts to themselves. When I, you know, the, the Jewish tradition is, is that a man doesn't read the Song of Solomon until he is married and, uh, or until I think there's actually, they put an age on it too. Like he has to be 40 or 45 or something like that. Um, I always thought that that, that was not the book that uh, should be reserved. I always thought the book of Judges was the one that should be reserved until a person's older. I mean, my, my, my children listen to the Bible as they're going to bed. They're on a one, you know, I put them on a one-year uh, reading plan in there and they listen to the, to their day before they go to bed and, uh, they enjoy it, which I, which I, which I enjoy, right? I enjoy that they enjoy it. Um, but, uh, I always, I always think, hmm, should I let, should we skip the judges, uh, pa passages, right? Cause there is just some, <laughs> there's some really, really harsh stuff. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, I agree. That's, that's, uh, there's, there's tough stuff on that one so okay we're gonna leave it there today i know we're a little early but that's okay that's okay um we would like to hear from you though if you have questions or topics that you'd like us to uh, touch on on this show we would love to hear about it chegg at torresource.com that is our email address chegg at torresource.com you can also call our comment line 253-465-3205 it's 253-465-3205 um you're not going to want to miss our mystery bible theater 3000 which is coming back this friday by the way it's uh it's a good one we've already recorded it and uh, it's it's well worth the uh it, it was so well, good we recorded it already yeah exactly it's so that's how good it is and uh <laughs> it's a longer one i think we went, went what 35 minutes or something like that yeah, uh yeah, yeah it was it was uh, a good we, one we might be strained we might push be pushing the boundaries of the 
of the yes, genre. But that's okay. Uh, last thing, please subscribe to this YouTube channel. I know it sounds weird, but it really does help us. And we will be back next week. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, you know why. Because Messiah matters. 